The Traffic Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Wow, this is incredible. It was a cold morning in Lima, in Peru, and my team and I woke up just before dawn to meet a source that was going to give us this access that we'd been waiting for for a long, long time. And we got to this given location, the location that was given to us at around 5 a.m., so it was way too early. And uh, and we realized that it was actually a very normal-looking shopping mall. Um, so not at all where I'd expect to find what I was looking for. So it's this surreal scene where we walk down these corridors and everything was closed and then suddenly there's a bright light here and they're just printing fake money. I'd been looking for months and been left hanging by countless sources. I'd even been told that my search would be next to impossible. But here it was, in the middle of this unassuming mall, were some of the best counterfeiters around, printing fake U.S. money. This is amazing, pero increíble, mi We've got the watermark, the background color of the banknote, and now Franklin's face. The bills looked so real, and they were flying out of the machine, sheet after sheet. That's a ton of money. That is crazy. They can make $6 million with a machine that cost them $7,000 to buy here. I'm Mariana Van Zeller, the host of the new National Geographic TV series, Trafficked. Each week on the series, I dive into a different black market and meet the people who make their living inside it. But the Trafficked podcast is a little different. Each week, I'll bring you the story of one person who made it big in the black market, how they lived the high life, and how it all came crashing down. After diving deep into the world of counterfeit money for my TV series, this week on the podcast, I want to learn more about another black market, this one also full of forgeries. Welcome to the billion-dollar world of illicit and fake art. It was raining, 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 raining money in Paris. It was unbelievable. For more than two decades, Michel Van Rijn was one of the world's most prolific art smugglers, making millions from master forgeries and illicit antiquities. For all that time, he evaded law enforcement. You had at least four countries' governments after you and the Interpol, right? International yes. police. Everybody was after you at one point. And they were asking for my extradition, and they were telling me, you have more extradition than a serial killer. I said, well, that's nice. Thank you very much. He got cornered. He was an expert art trafficker and a wanted man, which actually made him the perfect informant. You infiltrate. You make sure that you know where the shipments are going. Just how and why he flipped will come later in this story. But let's first rewind. Before he became one of the most notorious counterfeiters of the art world, he needed to become an expert. So let's start with his early art education. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what your childhood was like. My father was a dentist and my mother was an artist and my father used to paint also. Michel van Rijn grew up as what he calls a luxury gypsy, splitting time between Holland and France in the 1950s and 60s. So he worked half a year very hard in his dentistry in Amsterdam 
to be able to live with the family in Saint-Tropez, which was before Brigitte Bardot, and it was still a very lovely little fishing village. I went to school there. Were your parents into art when you were growing up? Very much so. So both they were painters. Michel says that his mother always lived with a certain amount of sadness that lingered from the Holocaust. She was Jewish. She survived the war. She had a very difficult time with that. I remember as a child, all these older people crying in the house. There was like a blanket a little bit, you know. If you are laying under a wet blanket, this feeling. But even under this blanket of sadness, his mother had, and shared, her love of art. Michel knew he wanted to be involved in art, or at least that he didn't want to be in his father's world of dentistry. I was terrified to become a dentist and to, to look in mouses for the rest of my life and to stand in one <laughs> square meter and not being able to move there. So I gave the keys to the house to my dad when I was 16 and I went to Istanbul and I went to the bazaar in Istanbul and I started dealing there and boy, did I learn there quick. Istanbul was a center of trade, and it's always been. It was, was perfect. It was a start. And it was buzzing because it's, it's the perfect marriage between East and West. And it, the food is good. The women were beautiful. The, 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 the odors. The, it was a complete other world. We're stepping in paradise. Michelle dove headfirst into the market of antiquities. The authentic, ancient, and important. If you work in the art world, at least you have to have done your classics, no? Listening to him talk about art, I'm reminded of a master counterfeiter I met while investigating for the TV episode on fake money. He told me that the secret of his craft is creating counterfeit bills that are even better quality than the real ones. In the art world, that means becoming an expert in the real thing. Equally important is how to close deals. Michel was now starting the next phase of his unofficial schooling. I fell in love very young, very young age on business with Byzantine art and Russian and Greek and Byzantine icons. It hit my heart and it never left me. One day, when he was making his way through a bazaar, Michel says an object caught his eye. It was on a table surrounded by completely unimpressive trinkets. But there it was. There was a Byzantine dish which was spectacular. I mean, 11th century silver embossed with figures, with, with um, warriors. With, I was blindsided. I, I, didn't, I had only view for this thing. So there was a price and I was willing to pay the price. He had set all kinds of other little trinkets and shit little things around it, which obviously were all forgeries. Michel knew that this plate was the real deal. And he knew that he could smuggle the plates into Switzerland and arrange a private sale for a major profit. So he started negotiating, trying to buy the plate and only the plates, practically salivating over it. Then the coffee kept on coming and the cakes kept on coming and I didn't want to have coffee, I didn't want to have cakes, I want to have my plate in heaven and now please. But that didn't work, so... The seller was trying to get him to buy forgeries along with this treasure. And Michel was getting very frustrated. That's when his partner took him aside and taught him a lesson he would never, ever forget. Then he said, look, you know, you don't give the man any credit, but you have to give him something. You have him letting you screw you. So you think that the best deals out there happen when both parties are, are happy with it, with the outcome? 
Yeah, you can interpret it as you, as you wish, but the, the man knows that he is uh, letting a, a wonderful work go. You have to give him also some sulas, some huh. some compassion, some... You understand it has to be a 50-50 yeah. effort. You have to learn that you can step both from the table as winners. There is no loser and winner in a fair deal. My Armenian partner, he said, that's good, because that's Kavla. I said, what the hell is Kavla? He said, Kavla, Michel, if you make love, what is the best moment? Well, just before you come. And that's the feeling which they like to stretch when they are doing the deal. Well, I bought that in the time, which I remember very well, because it was one of my first big deals. It was serious money for me also, which was at the time like $60,000. And I sold it like $350,000 in the end. He made nearly $300,000 in profit. Now, was the sale legal? Well, this whole market is gray. These were authentic artifacts that didn't have origin paperwork or that were sold by vendors who didn't have official licenses. Okay, so there was a 1970 international treaty calling for a crackdown on those sorts of sales, but it wouldn't be binding until individual countries adopted it. Turkey, for example, didn't ratify that treaty until 1981. Borders are man-made, so on this side of the border, this is allowed, on that side of the border, that's allowed. It's very complicated if you... Consider yourself, without being big-headed, a world citizen. No, I'm a citizen of the world. I'm not a citizen of one country. It would be very, very narrow-minded, I think. Everything has a different perspective. It depends which lights fall in, which, uh, which place you stand on that moment. After he fell in love with these Byzantine artifacts, he kept chasing them. Sometimes that hunt wasn't as pretty as a walk through the bazaar. And it certainly wasn't as gray. Because he didn't just buy artifacts. Sometimes he took them himself. He was in Cyprus during the Turkish invasion. The year was 1974. You know, I was 22 years old. And I was there when the invasion came, when the Turkish Operation Attila, when they fell fell in. So they were smashing all these churches, shooting at the icons, burning the icons. Michel knew that inside each of these churches were priceless artifacts. So he approached the Turkish officers. I went to them and I say, look, I'm willing to pay you. Let me clean the church after you blow as much as you like. I think a lot of people would hear that story and say that what you were doing was pillaging. But I wasn't pillaging. They were blowing up the churches. If I wouldn't have bought the, the, the mosaics and the icons, they would have been gone also. I'm not looking for an excuse, not at all. I'm very proud that I did that and that the works of art are there. I mean, I had so many incredible, incredible people who were so grateful that these pieces they are saved because centuries of centuries of ancestors of them, they all be kneeling and admiring and, and, and glorifying these pieces. And now they are still there. These are the kind of stories that make people call Michelle the Indiana Jones of the art world. But Michelle's business was a for-profit venture, and he admits it. The art market is no place for heroes. How can you be respected if you deal in works of art which are uh, coming illicitly from the ground and they have fake provenances on many occasions? If you have a gallery in Amsterdam or in London and you buy at auction and you have the risk that you buy a painting which is coming from the Shoah, from the Holocaust. 
So you're never excluded from risks. He faced moral ambiguity and major personal risk. I think the big question is, how did he not get in trouble for any of this? You know, you don't walk in with a police station with two mosaics under your arm. So you don't, they don't bother you, you don't bother them. You know, I went with the Tombaroli, the tomba robbers here in Florence and also in Rome. On the hill, I see down, I see a police car coming. And I say, boys, don't we have to rush a little bit? She said, no, no, it's my cousin, it's my cousin. He comes to have a look what we found. And he comes to have a glass of wine with us and a little bit of cheese. This was paradise. This was adorable. This was fantastic. So you were going in the middle of the night into the tombs with these with these tomb raiders, essentially. They, they walk with long poles and they push them in the earth. And once you have a tomb, the pole is going in. They're heavy poles. It's heavy work. I know some tomb robbers, they give any, any archaeologist a run for his money. They know so well, they discovered the most beautiful, beautiful things. And they consider it their grand, their, their art. It's from their ancestors. They're not going to share with some shifty uh, mayor in a village. And you would essentially buy this from them and then sell it elsewhere? Yeah, sure, 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 sure. Guilty as hell. And so, Michelle was becoming an expert in navigating this underground antiquities trade, a market that's still worth billions of dollars. That's what I say in the art market, you can't be whiter than white. Uh, If you are a prostitute, you sell your trade. Uh, You cannot take the moral high ground. For Michelle, cultural antiquities weren't enough. He began to take his skills to another lucrative part of the art market, forgeries. But first, this. When Michel wasn't trafficking in antiquities salvaged from war zones or looted from ancient gravesites, he was dealing in antiquities that weren't antiquities at all. They were fakes. But so well known for his fabulous finds, Michel built up a client base, art collectors who made very special requests. Quick note before we dive into the world of forgeries. Some of the deals Michelle tells us about are impossible to verify. So, listener beware. I picked up this, this Japanese client. They were ordering 400 icons, 30 by 40 centimeters, Mother of God, please. They asked for hundreds of matching icons, which are religious works of art. And Michelle told them that it was nearly impossible to find so many icons of that exact size. But they asked him again. Do you have 400 icons, 30 by 40 centimeters for us, Mother of God? I said, yes. I said, then you will get them also. So I had them made. So everybody happy and I had my best client. So you had them made entirely from as a forgery? Yes. By whom? <laughs> you go to the placa, you find in, in Athens, you find 20 uh, icon painters. Michel sold these newly painted forgeries and says he made a two and a half million dollar profit. And the clients came back for more. My name is Van Rijn, so, which is the last name of Rembrandt. And they say, yeah, well, you are Van Ryan, no? I say, yeah, sure. Rembrandt Van Ryan, the 17th century Dutch Renaissance painter, considered the most important figure in Dutch art history. They say, we are willing to pay up to 12 and a half million for a Rembrandt. So I scored the market and I found a Rembrandt for like three and a half million or something for sale. Um, a real Rembrandt. 
a real one. A re well, that time it was real. Now I believe there is another version. I mean, hmm. art historians, they change opinions like we change shirts. Hmm. He was hoping to sell this ostensibly authentic Rembrandt, purchased for three and a half million dollars, for much, much more. But Michel could only pull that off if he could keep up appearances as a Rembrandt heir. Michel went from faking a batch of icons to faking his own identity. I had to find the castle, I had to find the Rembrandts. And the castle was just so that you could pretend that you were part of the family? Part of the Rembrandt family, yes, it was a nice little castle just outside of Amsterdam. And so I pulled them through along the Rembrandt, they saw the castle, I went with them to the airport, I had the painting in my hand. Oh. Uh, my God, so anyhow it was sold, it was fantastic. How much was it sold for? Uh, I sold nine and a half million that time. Wow, wow. How much did the castle cost to rent? Well, that doesn't matter because even if it's 50,000, it's no money, you understand? Because you make in a day, you make <laughs> right. like I was, it, it cost me three in the end. So you made nine and a half something. Uh -huh. Wow. For the purpose of selling art, Michel blended in as a Rembrandt heir. He also blended in very well with the upper crust, with his clientele. Yeah, well, sometimes it's simple, no? But it's, sometimes it's also unreal what values are added. It's like a man in a suit. You see him in a pajamas, you have a different uh, opinion. It's, it's what, why do you think people trusted you? You're quite convincing if, you, if I was believing in the painting. So the rest is shishi for me. And by shishi, you meant you meant just like you play the part, right? You dressed in a nice suit. You spoke well. You were knowledgeable. You had the roles. You had the Bentley. You had, yeah, sure. You have to be able to express yourself, to feel like a fish in water, and as long as you stay on course. And you were hanging out with some of the most powerful and richest people in the world at this time. Yes. What did that mean? Like, what was your life like at the peak of your? Life as a art smuggler and trafficker. What was your life like? Well, you had the Benetti, the, the boat, uh, like 50, 50 meter yacht. You had the plane. Uh, you had the houses. You had a private plane. Yes, you had the women. You had you had a very eighties. Uh, you know, uh, now nobody would, would would care. But that time was something fantastic and. You had all the parties, you met everybody. Michelle says that he partied with rock stars, that he went to Monaco with A-list actors and actresses, and that he lived next door to a famous director. Michelle doesn't want to name drop publicly, but to me, he named Big Shots. Did they know what you were doing? Did they know that you were an art trafficker? You know, there are rumors, and the more rumors there are, like art trafficker, and um, the better it is for your... Um, for your for your persona because it's like a kind of mystery man you understand so so they can't pin down where your money come from there but you know if they want to have a painting they know to find you if they huh. so uh, you do a lot of business also at the same time and, and, and it was not very difficult to mix then with the so-called Blanche society, the really wealthy. They look for that kind of adventure, that, that, that curtain which basically is always closed and if you open it, there's nothing there, but only your own projections. Michel upped his game even further, duping even more people with higher stakes, 
and higher profits. I bought the drawing of Leonardo da Vinci here, which was valued. Uh, I had it valued by Sotheby's and by Christie's, and say, oh, it's 1,500 pounds. It's nothing. He found a professor who said it was real, and a buyer, a Japanese museum, who believed it. But the Italian government stepped in, and Michelle wasn't allowed to export the drawing. You don't believe this drawing is good? Who cares? Michelle tried to make a generous donation to the government. Could a million dollars buy him any wiggle room? Let it go, let me sell it, and you have a million, and you can use that. No, 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 there was no way. In fact, so Michelle's story goes, the Italian government wanted to confiscate it for themselves. They sent a government official to meet Michelle and put the work of art at a bank, in a safe. But Michelle says he had a plan. He met the official with his sparkling and vivacious secretary. His words, not mine. And the three of them gathered together as Michelle opened a manila envelope and showed the drawing to the official. Then, with the official seemingly distracted by his beautiful secretary, Michelle switched out the envelope containing the drawing with an identical envelope containing a piece of cardboard. Then I flew with my secretary to Japan and we delivered the drawing in Japan. So I got 14.5 million for a fake drawing, which was quite good paid. You use the ingredients of the moment. If you are a good cook, and if you have some nice ingredients, you can make a good pasta. A pasta dish worth $14 million in that case. Yes, I have 14 and a half. As Michel's game leveled up in both risk and reward, he started being noticed by those he was trying very hard to avoid, international law enforcement. Who was after you at this point? The French, the, the French, the French with the vengeance, oh my God. Why did the French police want him so badly? Well, he'd become a master forger of Marc Chagall's signature. Michel had sold multiple impressive and expensive lithographs, signed Marc Chagall, the famous modernist painter. He had been convicted in absentia in France and placed on the Interpol watch list, Since French law didn't require him to be in court, Michel had no idea he was even under investigation until the authorities showed up at his villa in Marbella, Spain, and whisked him away. Tell me about the day you were arrested. I was in the garden, a big garden. It's called Casa del Lago. I had my own lake, which was very quiet, very beautiful. And suddenly you hear four car doors closing. Open, close, open, close. So I knew it was police. Immediately? Yeah, of course. Did you think of running or what was it, what was going through your head? No, 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 no. Running is the worst thing. It's, it's absolutely, it's impossible life. It's not a life I would like to live. I would prefer to face the consequences and to, to deal with what's on the table than to go on the run. It's hard to argue that Michel ever served hard time. He says that close connections to the Italian mafia ensure that his prison stay was short and comfortable, and that it took place in Spain rather than in France. How much time did you actually do in prison in Spain? Three months. Three months only. That's it. When I was inside, then all other countries, suddenly France, suddenly Switzerland, suddenly other countries came out of the woodwork And they were asking for my extradition, and they were telling me, you have more extradition than a serial killer. I said, well, that's nice. Thank you very much. He jokes now, but that was a dark time for Michel. Much of Europe was after him. He was exhausted and anxious. 
But it wasn't just legal authorities he was worried about. It was also the types of criminal networks now dealing in illicit arts, cartels and terrorists. The fun was gone, the, the, the adventure was gone. It came down to numbers and, and money and ripping uh, graves because the art market is not the same anymore. It's spoiled, it's by bullets, by, by crooks, by drug dealers, by, it's, it's, it's an ugly world. The world of art trafficking has a very real and very dark underbelly. Trade in illicit antiquities is the biggest international crime outside of drugs and arms trafficking. And it's carried out by the same networks, networks that were getting more and more sinister. Because of terrorism, this whole uh, facet of the art market changed. Antiquity trafficking was now financing terrorism. In fact, ISIS has been using looted antiquities since its inception. It's reputedly their second highest source of income. It's called cultural racketeering. You know, nowadays a lot goes via Dubai. You relabel the antiquities and you send them to London with an invoice from Dubai. So the customs in London, the customs in Paris, the customs in New York, they say, oh, fantastic, paperwork, perfectly in order. Now they learn, you know, but you have to have people as me who have been in this rotten system, who are fed up with it. Coming up... A fed-up Michelle makes a life-changing decision. Michelle knew that he was in too deep, in a very dark and very dangerous world. He was fed up with it, and he was wanted by the authorities. Michelle heard a rumor that Scotland Yard's Art and Antiquity Squad was eyeing him, and not only as a wanted man, but as a potential source. The knowledge I gathered it was suddenly helpful in the fight against terrorism uh, and blood antiquities, because that's what they are, they're blood antiquities. So he made a decision. He invited a detective for a drink at the Dorchester Hotel in London and asked him not to bring the handcuffs. That detective had been chasing Michelle all around the world for 10 years. The two eventually sat at the bar and spoke for the very first time. The conversation turned out to be fruitful, and Michelle Van Rijn slipped. Was this when you started working with the authorities? Yes. A partnership developed. They asked him questions. He provided good information. If it didn't work with a handler or it didn't work with somebody, then they would, would change. Because I'm also not the easiest person, apparently, to work with, so I don't know that. A former handler of yours at Scotland Yard once said that you're... You're very dangerous to work with because I think he actually said he's not above keeping the best mosaic for himself. What would you say to that? Well, it's true because sometimes it's not that you have the final saying, but sometimes they don't deserve it yet. Michelle set up his own sting operations to find and take down traffickers with the help of Interpol, Scotland Yard and other authorities. Some of these things target former business associates, who he says had wronged him, like the legendary bust of Aidan Dickman. Now, Dickman was a mastermind behind artifact looting in Cyprus, a very dangerous game, and he reportedly employed a whole network of thieves. There were works of art involved which were robbed and people were killed for. 
and I was warned. Michelle got caught in the middle of it. And then he put me on the list of the gray wolves. My family was on the on the list to be shot to be, and I was shot at at the terrace in Amsterdam. And the gray wolves are sort of the, the mafia in in Turkey, sort of the underworld. Well, they were bad news. They were they were the ones who, who shot the Pope also. To protect himself, Michel set up a sting. Three times he arranged to buy illegal artifacts from Dickman, and each time he made sure authorities were watching. As a last blow, he secretly filmed one of the exchanges. To get to the core of these underworld figures. And it uh, was a major, 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 major operation. And that was enough for authorities. Agents raided Dickman's apartments and found frescoes, mosaics, and icons worth more than $40 million. He'd been wanted for over 15 years. And he was finally arrested. It was the biggest haul of stolen works of art after World War II. It was a slam dunk, it was a success. The culprits, they went to prison. And I was just, I have absolutely no qualms of being involved in something like this. Michelle pissed off a lot of powerful criminals. Agents he worked with allegedly took bets on how long they thought Michelle would stay alive. You know, my life was threatened, the life of my children was threatened. We lived three years after the operation, three years under protection of the yard in England. During that time, he decided that he wanted everyone to know the truth about what lay beneath the classy, shiny veneer of the art world. He wanted to bring all the dirt to the surface, so he started writing all about it. And so I was appalled. I went to London, I opened a website, and I started to at least to let the art world look into a mirror how it really looks, what really goes on behind the scenes, before it's in the plush gallery or on a pedestal in Sotheby's with your pink in the air and a glass of champagne in your hand. Michel wrote on his blog about where he thought antiquities were really coming from. He also wrote about the fakes inside major collections. The museums who were buying at the time, there were the scandals, they knew. We exposed a lot of things because I had a lot of knowledge from the old dealers, of course, also. Why do you think that there's so much trafficking in the art world and, and so many forgeries, too? Well, because, you know, it's such a difficult material. If you take a Van Gogh, it's a piece of canvas and it's a little bit of paint. And as they say, the rest is in the eye of the beholder. Some art experts and historians have suggested that 30 to 50 percent of artwork in circulation is fake. Would you say that you're happier now? living on the right side of the law, or were you happier then when you were living the high life? Well, I'm not so sure. You know, I'm, I'm not so sure that it's the right side of the law. Because on the right side of the law, many left things happen. You know what I mean? It's, right. it's, it's very confusing. But yeah. if you play by the so-called rules, which, I, which is always difficult, because there it starts. Because the rules in Italy are different from the rules in France, are different from the rules in America. And then you want to play by the rules, which rules? There's no universal rules. Next time on the Traffic Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller. This girl goes, why are there helicopters keep going around? We'll dive into the glitz and glamour of the high-end sex trade. So do you remember what it was like the first time that you had sex for money? Yeah, I do. Heidi Fleiss's rise from street hustler to famed Hollywood madam. If you're going to run an illegal business, you got to drive the best cars, 
sleep with the best looking people, live in the best house, because sooner or later you're going to get caught. The ways it went right and the ways it ultimately went wrong. So they just came like all up the hill from everywhere. Did you know immediately they were coming for you? Yeah. Yeah, I knew. That's next time on The Trafficked Podcast. The Trafficked Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller is a companion to the National Geographic TV series Trafficked and is produced for Nat Geo by Muck Media. Margaret Catcher is lead producer. Ted Woods is executive producer and audio engineer. Abby Spears is associate producer. And Paula Benson is line producer. Original music by Jeff Morrow. Production assistance by Brian Hewen, Julia Bella, and Scott Kirk. Special thanks to Zoe Har, Todd Herman, Vilma Linares, Susan Matheson, and Michelle Van Ryn. The Traffic TV series is available now on National Geographic, and new episodes air Wednesdays. Executive producers for NetGeo are the awesome Chris Alberts, the amazing Bengt Anderson, and the fabulous Matt Renner. And from Muck Media, executive producers Jeff Blunkett, Darren Foster, and me, Marietta Van Zeller. And don't forget, if you like this podcast, rave about it to your friends and ask them to subscribe. See you next time in the underground. Underground.